Welcome to the Lean Blog Podcast. Visit our website at www.leanblog.org. Now, here's your host, Mark Graben. Hi, it's Mark Graben. Welcome to episode 400 of the podcast. Yes, that is a big, huge, round number. 400 episodes since the launch in July 2006. Episode 1 Back then, of course, featured Norman Bodek. It's it's bittersweet to think back to that. And um, you know, this this podcast was Norman's idea. And he passed away in December. But I'm really glad that we have all of the episodes with Norman. Um, I'm glad that we have episodes with so many great guests over the years. And one of those guests who joined us a lot in the earlier days of the podcast is back with us Today, he is Jeffrey Liker. He is a retired professor from the University of Michigan. He's the author of the second edition now of his seminal book, The Toyota Way. So that's the opportunity for us to have the conversation here today. Um, I really you know, have loved doing this podcast. I, I'm, at this pace, I will be at episode 500. We'll have to do some sort of big celebration for that. I will probably be um, at that point in another three or four years. So I have, um, I think there's a lot to look forward to. There's a lot to be thankful for. Um, You, the listener, um, being part of this, um, I really do appreciate that. Um, I'm able to share these conversations um, with you. For show notes and more, you can go to leanblog.org slash 400. I'd also like to mention that this podcast is part of a new collaboration. It's an informal group we call the Lean Communicators Network. You can learn more about all of our podcasts at www.leancommunicators.com. Thanks for checking it out. Hi, everybody. Welcome to the podcast. I'm really excited that we're joined again uh, by Jeff Liker. And um, you know him, I'm sure, from uh, the Toyota Way and uh, that series of books um, holding up here for those who are watching on YouTube, uh, the new and revised second edition. So we're going to be um, talking about that. So, Jeff, thank you so much uh, for being here. Thanks for having me, Mark. Yeah, so um, it, it's been uh, I'm glad we can. I'm glad the book created an opportunity to uh, to talk again. And it, it's been a while. And, you know, before talking about the book, I want to say uh, congratulations on um, I, I don't know, is that the right word to use or acknowledging sure. <laughs> you say sure <laughs> uh, on your retirement from the University. Of oh, I thought you were talking about the book. But well, congratulations yeah. on the book, but congratulations on retirement or. Uh, yeah, the retirement's been a while. Uh, it was about five years ago. Oh, has it? Okay, so we yeah, that's uh, we haven't talked in a while, so yeah. that doesn't feel new at all. No, no, not to me. <laughs> um, so even you know, with retiring from the university, I see you still have the block M on your uh, your pullover there. What, what, oh well, um, my uh, our basketball team is playing tonight, and even though I'm just sitting at home with my wife, yeah, I got my gear on. So normally, are you attending quick, quick personal sidetrack here? Do you go to a lot of games normally? I go to all the football games and I go to some of the basketball games when I can. You know, now I can't, but when I can. And it's fun to go to the, particularly the basketball games, which is nice is they're uh, relatively easy to get in and out. It's only a couple hours rather than a like, half-day commitment. Yeah, yeah. And uh, far fewer people than uh, the big house. Right, right. Sure. Um, but yeah, I've, I've seen games in uh, both venues. I've seen the basketball team uh, beat my Northwestern Wildcats a lot. And the, I saw that on, on TV the other day. And then there's the occasional surprising, it's still surprising to me, uh, victory on the football field there in Ann Arbor. It's, uh, yeah, it's a pro- it can become more surprising <laughs> these days. Yeah. Um, so what, what have you been doing other than, you know, working on the second edition of the Toyota Way? You're, you're still keeping busy. What are you doing? Well, the, I, I have two hobbies that I see, sort of selected, sort of selected me, but one of them is uh, classical guitar. And I started playing guitar when I was 13 and played rock and folk and did that till I was 29 and became an assistant professor at Michigan. And then I just stopped cold turkey hmm. for 30 years. And uh, for the last 10 years or so, I've been taking classical guitar lessons every week, and I practice every day. So that 
is one thing. And then the second, and that gets my cycle motor skills used. You don't get that much of that typing on a, a book out. Uh, and then the second thing, using more of my motor skills is golf. And I started playing that about 20 years ago because of my son. Uh, by the time he was eight or 10, he was avid, an avid golf, wanted to be an avid golfer. So I had to figure out where there was a golf course in Michigan and what it looked like and how you walk onto it because I'd never been on one. <laughs> and, uh, then he got in the golf team and then he was pretty serious about it. But I, for me, it was a hobby and I'm probably more obsessed with it than he is now. Yeah. Oh, I was wondering, so golf wasn't part of the strategy for networking with the Toyota executives? Uh, no, not, not, they're usually too good for me. <laughs> um, but so I, I'm just curious, uh, how for something like playing guitar, did that come back to you pretty quickly or was that like relearning yes. again? Yes. I mean, I think anything, if I played golf for 10 years when I was young and then stopped for 30 years, I would be better than I am now playing every week for you know for the last 20 years so I, unfortunately we don't learn as quickly and as easily as we get older mm -hmm. and uh if you had the advantage you know kids that hated play at piano but they had to play it when they're young uh have now this capability to learn it when they're adults mm -hmm. at some point many people are so happy that their parents made them learn piano when they're young yeah it is like learning a language and i'm going to reach over here it's not quite the same, but I've got a pair of drumsticks in the office. Oh, oh, okay. And I, I had given I, I'd given this up cold turkey for a while, but in recent years, um, I've sort of surprised myself. Some of those uh, that that muscle memory and ability comes back pretty quick. Right, right. Um, but I, I, when I was a kid growing up, I used to take lessons from a University of Michigan graduate student. Oh, really? Uh, getting his master's degree in percussion. Huh. And that's where I learned I didn't want to be a professional musician because he, I learned from him how much time you spend in a practice room all by yourself. Yes, yes. Yeah, it's very exciting when you're on stage, but that's rare. And practice is, and like I, my guitar teacher gave me a little book that was how to practice guitar. And every instrument has a, a little book like that mm. that teaches you how to practice. And that's one of the things my even after over 10 years, uh, I'm going to have a lesson Monday. And I'm sure at some point my teacher is going to say, remember how we learned to practice? Because <laughs> we'll see him make mistakes and he'll teach me once again how to practice. Yeah. So that, which kind of fits with uh, some of what I wrote in the new Toyota Away. Yeah, I was just thinking that's a good segue um, to, to talk about the book and learning and, and practicing um, when it comes to scientific thinking and, and other right. Right. practices and principles. But um, first off, I was curious, Jeff, at a high level, um, you know, why why do an updated second edition? You know, maybe the publisher asked you to or there's no, that, not, that. that didn't happen. But uh, <laughs> it's been you can imagine that, you know, I wrote this uh, over 15 years ago. So it's been about 17 years. And so you can imagine that I might look back and say, wow, why did I say that? And uh, that didn't happen so much, but what happened was I learned more and put more, say, flesh on the bones. And also, at the time I wrote the book, I had I, I had less experience practicing lean, mm. particularly in different environments. You know, so early on, I was doing work with uh, the auto companies and particularly Ford, and I learned a lot about automotive, which is a somewhat peculiar business yeah. with all the manual labor in an auto plant. Uh, so uh, then I started to branch out and I got opportunities in shipbuilding and in iron ore mining and then finance and healthcare. And, you know, so as I got broader experience, it broadened my view of how you use the, the tools of lean and how they apply. And uh, so, so I had more examples. And then I also, uh, in the original book, what I was trying to do was to take Toyota as a case example. Not, the book wasn't intended to be uh, analysis or like a journalist would do mm -hmm. of Toyota that says, here's the strengths, here's its weaknesses, uh, but rather pulling out best practices and pulling out exemplars that could be used as a model 
uh, and turning it into principles. The principles are based on, I have a bachelor's degree in industrial engineering and I have a PhD in sociology and I taught organizational behavior when I first got to Michigan for years. So I was tying it into a lot of bodies of knowledge and I could look at what Toyota did and say, look, that relates to this theory of motivation. And Toyota seems to have some depth of understanding that they got through their folk wisdom and experience that is missing in this body of literature by academics. Yeah. Uh, so I, this kind of interplay between the academic world and the theory and the practice uh, led to these principles. And uh, as I you know, read more and learned more and went branched out into new directions in, in my research, uh, I could relate different ideas like, for example, Mike Rother's Tretacata. Mm -hmm. And it wasn't just Tretacata, but Mike was one of my students at Michigan. He was a master student. Mm -hmm. And uh, he had, uh, because he got interested in this kata, he had done a lot of research in different areas. For example, he was interested in how people learn mm -hmm. and how people develop thinking skills. We talked about lean thinking. Toyota talked about scientific thinking from the beginning. And how do you acquire that? And that led to studying uh, neuroscience and cognitive psychology. And he would send me an email saying, oh, you should read this. Mm -hmm. And I read a bunch of stuff that I hadn't read at all ever or some, and some things I reread mm -hmm. and I was able to relate those. So the, it was clear that there was more to say and that there was a somewhat different perspective to put this into. And it was sort of accumulating and I sort of hit the, breaking point, you know, went over the edge where there was enough to new to say that I thought it might be worth revision. I was nervous about it because mm. the book has sold so well and been read by so many people and people call it a classic and how do you improve on a classic? So I felt it was a little bit risky, but I just had learned enough that I thought it was worth it. Well, that's great. And uh, yeah, I mean, you know, with, with a traditional book and a printed book, there's, there's not really opportunities for small Kaizen. You've got to right. come at it as a fairly big batch, I guess. Right, exactly. Um, yeah, that's true. But um, so, you know, there's a lot, I mean, we kind of um, dive into some different details around what you said there. You know, I think, you know, for one, it's an interesting reminder um, or people, some people listening might not know that you have a background in both industrial engineering, which is you know, my, my background, by the way, mm -hmm. and um, sociology that you, or combining um, those educations and experiences um, in in your head, um, like personally, I find it really interesting to try try to learn uh, more in recent years from you know uh, lean authors or others in the community that do have um, social science backgrounds, like David Mann, um, you know, from mm -hmm. or in, in Western Michigan, um, has a background in uh, social sciences and and others that I've learned for that that really does start fleshing out. And you know, I was going to ask you maybe to elaborate as you touch on the book, um, mechanistic versus organic views of so that, Toyota that or TPS. To at least the uh, 1940s as a distinction. And you can also find it in uh, uh, Robert Kahn's book on the social psychology of organizations, where he talked about systems thinking. And... Uh, links it back to Burton Affley, who was one of the biologists who introduced the idea of general systems theory. So there's a lot of different bodies of knowledge that go back a long ways. And the uh, distinction between mechanistic and organic was presented more as a, as a dichotomy. It's a little more complicated than that, but uh -huh. uh, mechanistic means we look at the organization as if it's a machine. And a machine has fixed parts and they function in a certain way. And if you want to improve the machine, you can clean the parts and replace the parts. But if you really want to get a big improvement, you have to change the parts or change the fundamental design of the machine. Mm -hmm. So if you're thinking about the, the organization like a machine, you're thinking, you know, how does it function now? What's the next design change I can make to make it function at a higher level? The assumption is that if you, once you make the design change, you figure out the parameters and the specifications, you can implement that in the same way, wherever that organization is, whatever culture it has, and it should work in the same way. Uh, and, you know, you expect if you own, we just had a coffee maker 
go. And if you get a replacement part for the coffee maker, you don't expect it to act differently than the original part. Right. Uh, but in an organization, replacing a part could make the organization act very differently. Right. Uh, so that's the organic point of view, which sees organizations as biological systems. And then you have these crazy things called humans that you never can predict what they're going to do. And that ends up leading to a lot of interaction between the parts that you can't a lot of uncertainty because you can't really predict now what's going to happen in the future. Also recognizing that the environment plays a big role, the external environment. And uh, that uh, there's more, a lot of feedback loops. So you, you know, you do something and you literally from a linear point of view, you do something, expect a result. I implement this, I get this benefit, right. it meets my ROI targets. Uh, that doesn't make sense within a, within a complex system. So as you look at uh, this as a living complex system, it changes the game. Mm-hmm. And yeah. now you have to think about evolving. You have to think about uh, experimenting to see what happens because you don't know exactly what's going to happen. You need to think about continuous improvement because there's things changing all the time. And it gives you a very dynamic view of the organization and changing the organization. Mm-hmm. Which it turns out, you know, from basic folk wisdom in Toyota, you know, they called it the Toyota production system. And they'll say it's a system and the parts are related to each other. And uh, we have to try, you know, yeah, and that's yeah. about as theoretical as they want to get. But uh, mm-hmm. But what they're really saying, if you look at, these kind of simple statements that they make based on experience is quite profound mm. in leading to a very different view of the organization and how you improve it. So we maybe extend some of that analogy. Um, I've, I've heard sometimes people talk about you try to introduce something new to an organization and there can be antibodies that, um, that kick in or you can think of the, the idea of an organ transplant how uh, a new body can reject an organ that was perfectly good in somebody else, right? Right, right, right. Yeah, so that's an, those are the kinds of analogies you can make. So the mechanistic organic is very extreme. And in the original organizational design writings, they were saying if the tasks are fairly predictable and routine, then a mechanistic organization is much more efficient and works well. If the organization is if the work of the organization is new, innovative, you're creating like in design, then the organization should be organized more organically. So there was there's just that that distinction. And if you look at a, and in that writing, if you look at a factory, the assumption is that almost all the work is very routine. Right. So therefore, it works best when you have a bureaucratic organization. Uh, Toyota kind of confuse things a bit because they are very bureaucratic and they have rules and procedures and all the definite, all the defining features of a bureaucracy are part of Toyota factories, rules for everything. And yet there's a lot of employee engagement involvement, there's continuous improvement. It's a very dynamic environment. And therefore they seem to look like they're organic when you look from one point of view and then mechanistic from another point of view. Mm-hmm. And that led Paul Adler, who was a professor at University of Southern California, to uh, question this dichotomy. Mm-hmm. And he came up, instead of two types, he came up with four types. And at one extreme was the pure mechanistic bureaucracy, which he called coercive, yeah. where it's the managers and engineers who decide things, and then the workers obey, like, Frederick Taylor and scientific management. Because and, uh, the other extreme was the organic organization that has very few rules. But then in between, he called something enabling bureaucracy. What he saw at Toyota, enabling bureaucracy. And he said that there's rules and procedures, but they're tools to be used by the people doing the work and the, the people who lead them to enable them to better do the work. And there are more guidelines that can be used to improve the work rather than rigid procedures that need to be followed. So uh, so that's where I come out in the preface saying that 
a lot, mostly what we're doing with lean is introducing enabling bureaucracy. Yeah. It was simply a matter of saying, well, mechanistic is bad, organic is good. Then there's no real need for all these uh, procedures we put in place and standards we put in place. So um, maybe we can talk a little bit about um, healthcare first. And I know, you know one of the differences in the book um, is, is you have examples from uh, service industries, including healthcare, right? Right. But uh, one, uh, what I was going to ask with you know, in healthcare, one of the um, you know kind of organizational antibodies um, that comes up. You, you, you make me think. You, know, you get me thinking about how you know we want to emulate Toyota and talk about elements of enabling bureaucracy. Um, I'm generalizing, but I think a lot of health systems traditionally have been a coercive bureaucracy sort of environment with right. pockets of complete freedom to do whatever exactly. you want. Exactly. If you're in certain professional classes. Exactly. I mean, do you, do you, you know, you talk about having more experience with, with practice. Have, have you gotten better at trying to navigate some of that? Or how does a health system embrace something when they, they hear bureaucracy and, they, and, they, and then they kind of have this reflex of saying, no, bureaucracy is bad because it's coercive? Right. Well, every organization has the ability to reject ide new ideas and say, yeah, that doesn't work for us. We're different. And every organization at some point seems to do that, whatever the industry. And uh, healthcare has a lot of well, highly educated professionals. Mm -hmm. The nurses are not terribly powerful compared to doctors, but they're extremely well educated compared to the general population. Uh, so they can resist with in an articulate way. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, but for some reason, even educated people seem to define the world in black and white terms. Mm -hmm. uh, so sta standardization is bad. This came from Toyota. Toyota is mainly interested in productivity and producing widgets. We're trying to save lives and we're concerned about health and uh, safety. And therefore, they're so different, we can't learn anything from them. Yeah. But then what you see in hot healthcare are a lot of rules and procedures. They're, it's extremely bureaucratic, as you said. And the uh, it seems like it's bureaucracy gone wild and often bureaucracy without a purpose. Sure. Uh, so the bureaucracy, so for the experience of people in the healthcare system, more rules just mean more constraints. You know, I'm handcuffed and I can't do my job. Right. Uh, whereas in this enabling bureaucracy idea, which is a little bit hard to understand, uh, the bureaucracy actually serves a purpose. And if it doesn't, you get rid of it. Right. And uh, the even the doctors have all sorts of constraints and they're very concerned about getting sued. And mm -hmm. uh the but then they introduced uh what is it to, called for the best practices of surgical procedures it, uh it's science-based medicine or evidence-based medicine excuse me they, they usually say evidence-based yeah so evidence-based metric so evidence-based medicine which sounds you know everybody agrees that having medicine based on data and evidence and best practices would be a good thing yeah that gets turned into in healthcare into this mindless bureaucratic system where people in in a in the government are creating procedures and saying you should use this. Right. And doctors are saying, well, I have a better way. Yeah. And that's that's much more like a coercive bureaucracy trying to impose that on doctors who are the the freest and have the most power. Right. Uh, so if somebody doesn't understand lean and they have a superficial understanding. And then they're trying to make standardized work every place, including with doctors, they're going to get kicked out. Yeah. Uh, they won't last. But so it takes a more sophisticated approach. And what I've discovered is that the best in the lean world, the best lean consultants have often learned from industry and manufacturing, but have developed the ability to rise above that and then adapt what they've learned to new situations like in. Right. The different parts of healthcare. There are parts of healthcare that are very routine, uh -huh. uh, like uh, in the test labs, right? And a lot of what the pharmacists do, and water lease, moving things about. Uh, and there's parts that are very organic that need to be very creative. Uh -huh. uh, and uh, 
a person who understands lean deeply will understand the situation and figure out how to apply it in an appropriate way for the situation and explain it to the people in an appropriate way for the situation. Yeah. And I think that's me is the difference between somebody who's just mindlessly applying tools and somebody who understands the principles and then applies them in a flexible way. And then the person who's thinking and applying in a flexible way is always learning new things. Yeah. Yeah. Well, as, as you've demonstrated and, you know, with updating the book and being willing right. to do that, um, you know, for what it's worth, I was going to say, you know, it's, it's great to see because, you know, I think like you, you said, I mean, the, you know, the book has been a bestseller and um, I, I consider it a seminal work in, in the field. It, it would probably be hard to admit, you know, that that it could be better or, you know, people, you know, you know, words like expert and guru get thrown around and, you know, the humility to say, as you know, as you, you were saying in the preface, you know, filling in gaps in your knowledge. That's right. uh, that's such a great example. Thank you. I appreciate that. And I, you know, it was a little bit humbling to have my former student, Mike Rother, teaching me. Well, <laughs> I resisted good. it a bit at first, but yeah. <laughs> I found I had a lot to learn. Yeah. So I, we'll, we'll come back. I want to talk more about um, Toyota Kata and what you've learned um, from Mike. And uh, again, you know, thank you. Uh, it's great that you've um, incorporated that. But I, I wanted to talk you know, about healthcare more. That's the um, what I've been swimming in for um, most of the last 15 years. Um, you, know, you touched on a lot of things that, you know, sort of triggered different questions or thoughts. You know, for one, you know, I say, you know, um, talking about the weird different-ism. Like, th that's true, but I try to guard against the leap then. People saying, well, we're different, so therefore it doesn't apply. Um, but when things are brought into principles, like, for example, I helped lead a book study at um, the laboratory at Children's um, Health Dallas um, of the first edition of the Toyota Way. And different people from the lab would, you know, would take a chapter, you know, anyways, to have a typical book study format of discussing not just, well, what did you learn from the book, but then the question and the laboratory directors uh, were, were helping drive this conversation. We've learned about Toyota and these principles. How does that apply to us? And that was an incredibly helpful conversation and get that discussion going um, where a lot of times in healthcare people might be tempted to say, well, I'm going to go visit some other hospital and copy what their hospital did. Right. Right. In terms of what their lab did to be a quote unquote lean lab. Right. Um, you know, they, they 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 were trying to avoid that trap. Right. Good. Yeah, well, that's good. Because the uh, in some ways, having a model that's totally different from you is a good thing because it might reduce the. Uh, the inclination is just copy. Mm -hmm. And I make more clear in this version of the book than last that uh, that the goal is not to copy Toyota or to copy anybody, right. but to evolve your own system. And you can't because as a, if you think from a systems point of view, you're starting at a totally different place. Right. And you are unique, not just because you're in healthcare, but because you're this children's hospital and you know, wherever it is in Los Angeles area. But Every hospital is different and has yep. unique clientele and unique backgrounds of people that are in the hospital and the unique history and leadership. And so every, every hospital is different. Every department in the hospital is different from every other department. Uh, so even one of the interesting things about Toyota that sometimes surprises people is that if you go into a Toyota factory in Kentucky and then you go to, to one in the United Kingdom and one in France and one in Poland, uh, they're not all the same. Right. And Toyota and the, the Toyota experts in Japan don't try to make them look the same. They won't see a best practice in Kentucky and say, wow, this is great. Now everybody has to use this. Yeah. Uh, they might try to uh, make the information available. But if you were in Poland and you looked at the Kentucky and said, oh, this is cool, they're doing this, I should do it, your sensei is likely to say, why? Mm, mm -hmm. Why would you do that? Yeah. And then if you explain why and you have reasonable, reasonable explanation, then they'd say, well, that's why. So what you're trying to do is you're trying to improve the uh, uh, standard work and how it's being updated. So you now have an idea from Kentucky, but maybe you can improve upon it. Yeah. And find a better way. So they're encouraging you to think and experiment and learn. And when you copy, you don't do any of those things. Right. 
Well, I mean, I've seen, you know, when I used to live in San Antonio, I had maybe five or six opportunities to take um, students from the Masters of Healthcare Administration program there at uh, Trinity University and other healthcare professionals from um, related quality improvement circles, we would go tour the Toyota plant. And, um, you know, going through the plant, even within that same plant, you can see clearly in even different zones of the assembly line, it looks like they have different mechanisms for how they're tracking and managing improvement ideas. Right, right. Uh, different, uh, they don't have <clears throat> copycat bulletin boards. Uh, you know, some places might have what looks like a giant whiteboard type A3. And right. some people have what you might just call a punch list. Right. You might see in any factory, whether it's a lean or not. And, you know, I think that that's interesting to see where I'm sure the thought process is more similar. Yes. And, and they're, they're avoiding the situation I've seen in healthcare of like, oh, we visited Hospital X and they have these boards and they were great. And I took a picture of the board. Right. Exactly. And then we've put up 50 boards throughout the hospital. Like, what would you what would your hypothesis be? about what might happen then. <laughs> My hypothesis would be that you'd have a lot of boards that look the same and that wouldn't translate into necessarily any effective practices at all. That, that happens a lot. So um, yeah, um, or the board doesn't get I, used I at all. I tell a story, which is in the original book. I, can, I kept, you know, the good examples I kept in the new book, but one of the examples was a guy who was in a supplier plant in Chicago and they're a smaller supplier and they were, uh, trying to win more Toyota business. And they're very excited that somebody from Toyota had come out to the plant, and a Japanese guy. So they're trying to be at their best. Yeah. So the Japanese, one of the things that they uh, had worked on, the Japanese guy had suggested that, that they have something like Andon. You know, how do you know when there's deviation from standard? Uh, so they do their homework and they learn about Andon and in the whole system, it's lights, but it's hooked up through numerically controlled devices, uh -huh. and you pull the cord, and uh, it moves to a certain fixed position, and uh, then stops automatically, and it then keeps records of every time it stops. And it's you know fairly expensive, so you can spend e easily half a million dollars on a full Andon system. So they bite the bullet, put in this elaborate Andon system, and they're very proud that they made this commitment to lean. Yeah. And uh, then the uh, Japanese sensei comes and he looks and he get, looks concerned and, and not very happy. And he says, come with me. And he takes the, the president in his car to a hardware store. Mm -hmm. And he looks around and he found, finds this place that he's happy with. And he grabs a green flag and a red flag and a <laughs> yellow flag. And he hands it to the guy and says, and done. Oh, right. And the whole, you know, the purpose was to say, you know, it's not the technology, it's what you do with it. So start with this. If you can't make it work with these flat three flags, then you can't make it work with anything. Yeah, yeah. And, and you know, there, I saw, um, it was a story from the BBC going back, I think at this point, maybe 12 years ago, where you think the company would know better. There was a story about a Ford truck plant where they had installed an Andon cord system and the cord was pulled a couple of times a week. Right. And this right. BBC story compared that, of course, to the behavior and the culture in a Toyota plant. Right. Yeah. Well, the Ford, well, the, the American auto companies in general, historically, one thing that's going to get you fired for sure is shutting down the assembly line. Right. And uh, so that carried over. And now you give people the tools of the end on, you say, pull the cord and you have a problem. And they're like Pavlov's dog. You know, they're going to cower in the corner because I'm going to get beat up if right. I pull this cord. And they expect somehow that's going to change overnight. Right. Uh, and I tell a story in the book about uh, a guy named Mike Brewer, who was at General Motors and one of the first uh, about 15 members who were sent to NUMI to learn from Toyota. And he came back with a pretty deep understanding and then he was eventually responsible for a large part of the uh, what they called competitive manufacturing. And he would pick a few plants where he personally was a sensei. Uh, and in one plant, they had put in that whole fixed position line stop and on system. It cost them millions of dollars. Oh. And they were excited about it. And first thing he told them to do is just turn it off. <laughs> and he, not turn off the whole thing, but turn off the the automatic line stop part 
Um, you know, it hit a zone and then you stop, it stops the line automatically. Uh, and he said, and he gave him a checklist and he said, once you've achieved this level of maturity on these 10 things, then in that area where they've achieved that maturity, you can turn on the automatic line stopping. Right. right. And that maturity included that they had to learn problem solving, the Kanban system had to be used properly. They had to have decent 5S. Uh, they had to have standardized work that was functioning. So, you know, there's a whole set of things that needed to be functioning as a system with leadership that knew what they're doing. And at that point, they're ready for Andon. Yeah. And uh, maybe we can talk about um, more about scientific thinking and, you know, are people ready for that? You know, one thing, uh, you know, I saw in the book, you, you quote Meg Wheatley and, um, you know, I've been a fan of her work. And there are these, these questions about, how to help affect change of not just um, trying to copy the tools. I think back to my time at General Motors, I, I still have this guidebook on the shelf, a um, couple hundred pages of like, yeah, this is all the mechanics of stuff that somebody learned from Toyota. And right. was, there was nothing in there about how are you going to actually become more like Toyota? It, it, it requires more than painting lines on the floor and, right. and right. doing those easily observed things. Um, but can, can you talk more about, um, you know, um, the, the scientific thinking piece? Sorry, I sidetracked myself. But like what, what you learned from Mike Rother and, and what were some of the key insights for you? Yeah, well, the, in my original book, the fourth P was problem solving. And for years, I'd been talking to other people and they would always say it starts with problem solving. It's all about problem solving. So if you asked, for example, uh, what kind of Andon system do you prefer? Because there's bunches of different kinds of Andon systems and they would say, it depends. It depends on the problem. Yeah. Uh, and what I asked, the answer was always, it depends. <laughs> and what they're really saying is, what we're trying to do is solve problems, not push tools. Right. And uh, also with standardized work, what standardized work does is highlight problems mm -hmm. so that people can solve them. So they, they have tons of problem solving courses. You, learn problem solving when you come in uh, as a new employee. Uh, but you probably, you know, if you've been there for 15 years, you've probably gone through 15 problem solving training courses and your supervisor is teaching you that all the time. So I was familiar with the problem solving idea. One thing that surprised me uh, when I talked to Mike is he was criticizing some of the fundamentals of problem solving, which to me were sort of sacrosanct. Yeah, like, so, such as... Well, for example, you always have to find the root cause. Ah, yeah. Uh, and you should always follow these steps and the methods. And he criticized the idea of a countermeasure as the way, the way it was used. Mm -hmm. And what he was cr criticizing was that when you have a, that almost every company that, that teaches problem solving has a problem solving method that has some number of steps. It could be six, seven, eight, to it, and now has an eight step process to it called Toyota Business Practices, right. but the steps all follow Plan, Do, Check, Act, and it appears to be very linear. So you, the planning includes understanding the goals, the current condition, uh, the gaps, the root cause of the gaps, and then you develop your ideas for countermeasures. Mm -hmm. Then you do by putting the countermeasures in place, then you check to confirm the countermeasures and maybe make some adjustments, and then what works, you standardize. So it seems like a very, so one of the things that he noticed when he, when he thought about a scientific approach is that you've essentially through your countermeasures developed all your solutions in the plan phase. Mm -hmm. You haven't tested them. Right. And you have this big batch bundle of solutions that now you're trying to shove into the system in the do stage and you're, committing to these solutions at the point of maximum uncertainty. Right. Since you haven't done anything, you know the very least you're gonna know at the time you committed to those solutions. So he said a more scientific approach is to uh, have a stage where you set goals, because that gives you your targets and even a vision of where you wanna be. Then look at the current condition, and that would be the first time you look at the current condition and you'll collect data and you might make a cause and effect diagram. There's all sorts of charts you can use to 
uh, understand the current condition. So, you know, you're bound to the problem now. I know where I want to be. I know where I'm, where I'm at. But then from then on, every idea that you have becomes a hypothesis to test. Right. And it is much more effective to guide your direction to have a shorter term target than a long term target. Mm-hmm. And we know that's true from all sorts of things like even sports psychology. Yeah. Uh, having short term goals is more effective than, than long. So long term goals gives you a big direction. So he calls the short term goals target condition. Sure. So I know where I want to be a year from now. Where do I want to end up with two year two weeks from now? Right. And now it's more real. But even with that, he doesn't want you to assume that you know the solutions. He wants you to test the solutions. And the best way to test the ideas is one at a time. Right. To help gauge cause and effect. But if, if somebody's implementing that batch of ideas and they have no interest in really evaluating, it's okay to implement a batch. But when we're being scientific well, about if it. If you throw enough stuff at the wall, some stick. <laughs> and uh, you can get improvements that way. We don't necessarily learn a lot. Yeah. And usually you don't make any further improvements beyond that. Uh, you sort of wrap up the project and it was done. Uh, so the way we, even within Toyota, you'll see a lot of non-scientific problem solving. And that was kind of a shock for me because mm. I always looked at Toyota as the model. Sure. Uh, and then I got a little bit over time, a little more sophisticated. And, uh, and I was also pushing back a lot on Mike. So a lot of what happens in uh, the, on the shop floor with, with team members and their team leaders is you pull the end on, I had a problem, we record that, then uh, we look at the end of the day and we see we had this problem four times. So let's work on solving that. Right. And we very quickly decide on the root cause. And then we very quickly come up with an idea. So you have an idea and we try it mm-hmm. and we see if it works. But it doesn't look very iterative and you're not doing a very sophisticated job of understanding the root cause and understanding the current condition. It's kind of quick and dirty. Right, right. Uh, and the reason it can be quick and dirty is because the problem is very clear. We have scratches on this body. Where did it come from? Somebody's belt. Yeah, it's pretty observable cause and effect, perhaps. Right, yeah. right. So it it would be a kind of a waste of uh, would be waste a lot of effort to go through an elaborate eight step problem solving process for that. And Toyota doesn't; they have a simplified problem solving process for different levels. So uh, Toyota calls that SDCA instead of PDCA, mm-hmm. where the S stands for standard. Right. And you're starting with a standard. You notice something very specific out of standard. And then you're trying to bring it to the standard. And for that, they have a fairly quick and dirty problem solving method. Yeah. Uh, for the more scientific thinking, even though to the business practices looks linear, uh, what you end up doing is taking a big problem that's unmanageable and you break it into smaller problems and you pick one problem at a time. You, you set a target for just that one problem, that one sub problem you find the root cause for that one subproblem, then you're seeing it through, you're seeing through your solution, except that you're doing it in the Gemba and there'll be a lot of natural iteration. Yeah. So if you ask people who followed through on a project, did you get all the ideas right in the plan stage? They would just laugh, of course not. Yeah. So, but what Mike really was highlighting is the iterative nature and the benefit of rapid problem solving rapid experimentation and they started using language that was not necessarily Toyota language like experimentation mm-hmm. and target conditions right and the idea of having these shorter term targets and also what is the condition I want it to be in and then uh, when and then trying to overcome obstacles through testing your ideas and when you do a test ask yourself what am I really trying to test what's the idea what do I expect will happen when I try this out? Then you run the experiment, then what did happen, and then what did I learn from this? So that's PDCA, you could say. Yeah. But it's applied to each individual small little experiment. And that's true whether you're trying to achieve a revolutionary new product or a vaccine, 
Mm-hmm. And it's true, or it's true if you're trying to make the workplace for one worker more efficient. You know, uh, yeah. that in every case, there are going to be lots of things you don't know, a lot of uncertainty. And the way to learn, and he talks about learning with a flashlight, mm-hmm. you can only see so far with the flashlight. Yeah. And then when you learn more, you can move to a new place and you can see more with a flashlight. Uh, and learning with a compass rather than a roadmap. Mm-hmm. So it gives you a much more dynamic view of the process of learning scientifically yeah. than the kind of mechanistic, here's the six steps, what step am I at? You know? right. And it takes uh, a different way of thinking. It's a more organic way of thinking than a mechanistic way of thinking. So then he, had, he to add on to that, he asked, how do you learn that? You know, he wanted to go farther than, now I understand it, it's an interesting theory. Uh, how do you learn it? And then he looked to uh, a lot of research and literature on how people learn. Mm-hmm. And that drives you to start to think about habits and how we have habitual ways of thinking, not only habitual ways of physically doing something. Right. And if you're trying to change somebody who's thinking in a certain way that's linear and where they think they have the answers, they aren't testing their ideas and aren't learning new things, try to change that to this more scientific way of thinking, it's going to take a lot of practice to develop a new habit, a new new routine way of thinking that feels natural. Right. Uh, so that requires practice. And in, he, he learned about kata from the martial arts. Right. Where the way you go from being kind of hopeless, if you had to defend yourself to being, you know, a skilled fighter in the martial arts is you learn kata. They break down the uh, all the skills required to fight into small pieces, small movements, and then you practice those movements exactly as the teacher says, over and over again. Yeah. Until you master that piece. Yeah, it's like wax on, wax off. Yeah, wax on, wax off is a kata. Yeah. (laughs) And uh, essentially, the way I learned classical guitar was wax on, wax off. You know, that's my teacher saying. Wait a second. You know, you're playing through this mistake. Every time you play through this mistake, you're learning the wrong way of doing it. Yeah. Your brain is getting better. It's getting <laughs> locked in. You're developing, you know, you're he, developing a habit. And what the habit looks like is a bunch of neurons that are connected in a cluster. Yeah. And when you push a button in your mind, you're running that routine. Yeah. And it's going to do it exactly the way it's been taught, which is the way you're doing it. Yeah. It's not hearing what you say. It's only seeing, experiencing what you do. So every time you practice it wrong, you get better at playing it wrong, and you're more likely to play it wrong in the future. So he stops me and says, Jeff, stop, stop. <laughs> Let's go back to this one measure. And what's the right way to play this? And he says, slow down yeah. and play it at, at like one one hundredth of the speed and do everything correctly, yeah. every movement, every, the way your hand connects to the string, do everything perfectly. And then as through as you repeat, you get faster and faster. Yeah. Uh, and when you get to this piece, find the areas of weakness and just focus on those measures. Right. Now it's a lot less fun than it is to play the piece. Sure. Well, practice is, and people use the words, you know, grueling or, you know, well, exactly. You That's know, why but, a kid doesn't like to take piano lessons. Yeah. He but wants now, to play. Yeah. No, but, you know, I think of, you know, now organizations who are impatient, uh, I guess, you know, people are imp- can be impatient. Um, they maybe want to rush through the, the quote unquote rollout or implementation of these team boards or some practice instead of going slow to get it right. And I, I think of the Toyotaism, go slow to go fast. Right, right. Do, do similar ideas apply from what you've seen as you've gotten better at practicing right. this within an organization? Right. Yeah, no, similar things apply and the organizations are impatient. Uh, what we've, we learned from Toyota was the idea of the model line, they called it. And in the U.S. we have TSSC, which was, is called the Toyota Production System Support Center. And they learned that was a spinoff of the group in Japan called the Operation Management Consulting Division that Ono set up that had the original masters who 
you know, only taught the right way. Mm-hmm. And they would go into suppliers, for example, and they'd set up a model line. They'd pick one area of the plant and they would spend four months or actually the people who worked in the plant, the managers would, they would set targets, ridiculous targets that seem impossible to achieve. And then the, they, an engineer and a manager would be working in that for say four months and they'd keep improving it, improving it, improving it. And then finally they would achieve the challenging goal that four months ago seemed impossible. And in the process of doing that, they would end up with a full Toyota production system, all the bells and whistles, all the features. And the uh, teacher would guide him through that without ever teaching him anything. Right. You know, just by asking questions, challenging them, and occasionally giving them an idea, a suggestion. Yeah. Uh, and uh, then they would keep on going. Uh, so the assumption is once they learn this one area, what they want them to learn in one area is the process of transformation, the way of thinking, and also building the system so it functioned as a system. The people doing the work understood what they were doing and why, and, mm-hmm. uh, and the leaders brought in, and they could continue to improve it beyond the four months. And uh, so they would learn how this works as a system. And uh, then they would expect them to continue it, and they'd come back periodically, maybe once a month, and then once every six months, and they would challenge, and they'd push, and they'd criticize. And, uh, but the, the plants in Japan would get it, and they would just keep on going. Yeah. When we do that in the United States, and we build the model line, and everybody likes the model line, suddenly you, you get an order coming down from the top, good, do the rest of the company. Everywhere. <laughs> by the end, everywhere, by the end of the year. So they had no understanding of the what it took to get from day one. And instead of four months, it took eight months because right. we're sort of slower learners. So, uh, But they had no idea what happened in that group, what they learned, all the lessons learned, all the things they tried that didn't work, uh, how hard they worked at it, how hard the leaders worked to change their way of thinking. They didn't understand what happened in that model line, in that organic transformation learning process. Yeah. And they... And you know what I would always say is you're not trying to replicate the solutions and the results at the end. You're trying to replicate that process. So now yeah. every other part of the organization's got to take their eight months. Yeah. And but, and that's that's hard. That's really hard for for many organizations. Yeah. Um, but the um, yeah. So what the the process you're describing of asking those questions and you know I always I often fall back. On you know Taiichi Ono in his book, you know there's a header of one of the chapter. Start from need, and then he would talk about what are your most pressing needs. So like for me in healthcare, I think well the most pressing needs right now would include figuring out what needs to be done uh, for COVID treatment and for COVID vaccination and in normal times patient safety in general might be that most pressing need. And you know John Shook. Um, you know, in the Lean Enterprise Institute model, he, he says, you know, what problem are you trying to solve? That reminds me of what you're saying, right. where so often there's this dogma where, you know, people will say, and I'll, I'll challenge it, well, you always start with 5S. Yeah, well, right. That, that's a very mechanistic right. roadmap or cookbook right. approach. Right. right. Yeah. So I've never heard a Toyota sensei say, you always start with five S. <laughs> I, I never would that. Uh, they always, as Ono said, ask, what is the problem? Mm-hmm. And there is a, also this kind of dogma where, and people have learned this from some sensei, where they'll say, what is the problem? And you'll state something and say, no, what is the problem? And they'll ask, what is the problem? Like 50 times. And, and you'll have this laundry list of problems. And they're never happy with that. And at one point, at some point, you've said, this is the problem. This is the most pressing problem. So they actually want one. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it, you know, it could be pretty general or pretty like, for example, effectively and, and efficiently uh, distributing the vaccine, getting into people's arms. That's the problem. Yeah. Uh, so then the two other people say, "Good. Now we can move. Now we can proceed." Uh, and then when you're doing something, they're always going to ask, "How does that relate to the problem?" Yeah. And so, you know, when it comes to roadmaps, you know, and again, you know, the, the, the Toyota way and the subtitle, the 14, 14 management principles from the world's greatest manufacturer, the subtitle is not something like 
an easy 10-step 90-day roadmap to becoming lean. Right, right. Yes. Uh, so that's, you know, obviously intentional. Uh, and, you know, in, in Ono's case, he used to say, if you write it down, you kill it. Mm. You know, everything important you learn at the Gamba by doing. Mm-hmm. And then later to started to write, they created the house and they started to write things down more. And as they globalized, they found more of a value to having things written down. And then I was encouraged by people learn from Toyota. They say, they would say, when are you going to write another book? Mm-hmm. Said, Wait a second. I thought you didn't like books. <laughs> said, oh no, it has some value. We've changed our mind. <laughs> but again, it's the principles. So the, the problem is when you get say a hospital saying we're different, how does this apply to us? When you talk about standards, that's bureaucracy. We don't like bureaucracy. Uh, there's a Buddhist expression, when mind, e- when mind meets mind, everyone gets confused. Mm. And once you get into this kind of debate and dialogue where I'm pitching my theories, my mental models, and my data against your theories, mental model, and data, nobody's going to win. Where you can win is at the Gemba mm-hmm. by trying it. And particularly if I can uh, let go of my ego as an expert or teacher and let you try it yeah. and ask you your ideas. And that's why the, you know, the, the, the Toyota Sensei did and what Ono did. And now it's your idea. You're trying it. You see it works. Yeah. So you can, you'll eventually find standard work and you learn how to make it work right. as you keep trying things. And I don't have to convince you about standard work. Right. Go try. You'll it. be telling me how great it is. Yeah. Now, what I found is that the people who read my book that be- who benefit the most are people who have a good deal of experience at the Gemba trying this stuff. Yeah. And for them, they'll say, wow, I hadn't thought about it that way. Mm. Or, I've been doing this and I didn't realize I was doing this. Yeah. Uh, as opposed to this I've never heard of this before. I'm enlightened. Now I'm going to go out and apply this. So it's a diff. It's also a, in terms of logic, it's a difference between deductive logic and inductive logic. Mm-hmm. So some people do learn deductively and they could take a theory and they do a pretty good job of applying it. But most people learn better inductively. They try something, uh-huh. encounter a problem, they struggle through it. And then you can give them some kind of an insight that helps to understand why they struggled and why they were successful. And now they have a connection between what they experienced and some idea, more general idea. Yeah. And that's what I was trying to do with the Toyota Way. By that point, I had published in the Harvard Business Review, and they're all about case examples. Mm -hmm. And what's your big idea? Then start with an example and then, then show how the idea evolves from the example. Uh, and uh, I had kind of learned about that. That's why I focused on stories so much. Yeah, yeah. Um, so one other question I wanted to ask in, in this, I think, you know, kind of continue some of the discussion of the difference between being Toyota and becoming Toyota. Um, you know, no, principle number one, and I've, I've tried to point this out to people as often as I can. Principle number one in, in the list of 14 principles is about taking, making decisions based on the long-term perspective, even at the expense of the short term. I think right. I'm paraphrasing that pretty closely. Yeah. Yes. Um, for people who try to emulate Toyota, like, I'm curious your, what your experience is. I, I can't remember a hospital ever initiating a discussion of saying, hey, how can we become more long-term focused? Yeah. Um, well, it's again like this whole discussion about scientific thinking and how people learn. And also I added into the principle in the new version, systems thinking. I didn't have that in the principle. So system, because we're dealing with complex systems, that's why it's so important to think long-term and have a picture of where you want to be. Right to guide all the short-term, smaller steps you take. Uh, and when people are not, not thinking in terms of systems and they assume that there could be linear cause and effect, and you know, I'm as a CEO and I'm saying, you know, our problem, we know what our problem is, it's the budget. And we need to cut costs and we need to do our work, work, work more efficiently. And we need to implement the changes necessary to reduce our costs. 
And I should, every time I implement something, I should be able to see an immediate bottom line result and even cost justify mm. the change based on return on investment. And some places have gotten down to six month return on investment. Yeah. I've, when I was starting industrial engineering, one to two years was pretty common, yeah. but now it's six months. Uh, so uh, when you think about that short-term ROI, you're number one assuming linear cause and effect. I do X, I get Y. And number two, you're assuming that if I tackle a lot of short-term problems, somehow that's gonna add up to a new system that's functioning at a high level. Right. And that's not true, neither is true. Now, if you wanna change people's thinking, uh, it's not easy for one thing. We know that if I'm like 55 years old and I'm a CEO and I've been successful at everything I've done, and I have a doctor, uh, MD and I have an MBA and I'm always the smartest person in the world in the room and I've turned around three hospitals, mm -hmm. you're, it's gonna be hard to tell that person anything new. Mm -hmm. they're, they're gonna tell you, yeah. you know, what the right way to do things are. And they've learned it and they have their favorite consultants. And so it's, it's pretty difficult. But the, uh, the, the only chance you have is if you can get that person to the Gemba. Right. Actually working on a pro pro improvement project yeah. and participating in a team and not trying to be the leader of the team. And there you have an opportunity to coach that person and for that person to learn from experience. And they'll learn that things are more complicated than they think. They'll learn that the frontline workers have more ideas than they realize. They'll learn that the processes are pretty messy and there's a lot of different situations. And uh, they'll start to realize it's a system. It's a little more complex than simply, I order this to happen and expect to get these results. Yeah. So that the Gemba seems to be a really good place to learn a good, uh, they call it dojo in Japan, Japanese. Uh, the dojo is where you learn the martial arts. If you go into, you deal with a master black belt and you don't know karate or you know your version, uh, he's not going to give you lectures. Yeah. <laughs> He'll take you to the floor and there's mats and let's start. You don't go read a book about karate. Exactly. Yeah. So that, you know, unfortunately that's often what it takes and getting these guys to go to the Gamba may be difficult or even impossible. Uh, right. So you might have to wait your turn. That's the catch-22. Right. Because if you try to be coercive or directive and, and, and that leader that you describe might say, well, no, that's not my job. I don't need to do that. I've never done that. Right. And, and they how, how do you you know, this is how, how do you lead them to water? Right. Right. And I wrote the Toyota Way to Service Excellence with Karen Ross. Mm -hmm. Karen was originally she worked for an insurance company and she was originally answering the phones. And just on her own, she learned about lean and she became a lean consultant within the insurance company. She uh, had the ability, and it's a, it's really uh, a social skill more than anything, but she would like go to meet with a vice president of the Northeast region, who's like one step from God. And she would stand outside the office of that person, so male or female, and she would say, and they would say, come on for the meeting. And she'd say, no, come with me. <laughs> and she would refuse to walk into the office. <laughs> yes. And she'd wait until they walked out of the office. And then she would take them to the yeah. Gemba. And I, I, I know Karen well enough. I can picture her in that moment and her, her demeanor and enthusiasm. Right. And with she's the not threatening at all. And she's not being coercive at all. Yeah. And then every time she did that, she said that the uh, person loved it. They're yeah. so excited to get out of the office and to, some, to see something real. I've, I've seen a similar dynamic when someone has been open to the opportunity, um, you know, a hospital CEO going and just standing in a nurse's station for 30 minutes. Right. Exactly. And, and what they're used to if they go out in the, into the Gemba is they're being toured right. and and going and sitting and or standing and just observing work, you know, it was in a way it was a proverbial or, or it was like the Ono circle. Right. And, and, right. and they'll say, oh, my gosh, I had no idea how hard people were working, how hard they were struggling, those things that become quickly apparent. And you also see that there is each cycle is different than the others. Yeah. It's not a clear, simple pattern. 
uh, and all the best practices aren't being used. And if they were, they could see the nurses would be slowed down and they couldn't serve the patients. So, so, you know, Ono would take a day. That was the minimum time. And if we can get a half an hour, it's it's amazing. Yeah. Well, great. Well, Jeff, thank you so much for sharing, um, you know, kind of, your thoughts of what led to the book and and for sharing some of the things that you've learned and that you continue to teach um, in different ways. You know, this has been uh, a really helpful book um, to a lot of people in uh, a lot of different settings. That that book is, of course, The Toyota Way. The second edition is available now. Uh, It's available anywhere you could buy books, basically, right? Yep. And Uh, uh, I do recommend it. I've had people ask me, if I already read the first version, should I read the second version? Or if I haven't read the first version, should I read that first? And I, I, I think that the second edition is quite a bit better and uh, more relevant today. Uh, more examples yeah. of uh, from service, but also the idea of scientific thinking is portable and it goes everywhere and for any type of problem. So uh, I would point people to the new book. Right whether they read the first book or not. Yeah, so yeah, so that question's easier to answer. And it, you know, for those of us like myself who have read the first edition, I mean, I'm gonna flip through and look for things that are different and- uh... I wouldn't recommend that. No. It's, it's, really about, it's really about 90% different. Okay, so I will, I will conti- I've been reading it from the beginning. I will continue doing that then. Thank you. Put my impatience um, aside, but reinforce and, and relearn and, and rethink. So. Um, Jeff, thank you so much. Our guest is, uh, has, uh, of course, been uh, Jeff Liker. Um, really appreciate you doing this today, and um, hopefully we can talk again. It's good to talk to you again. Hopefully it won't be another five years. <laughs> well, okay, well, hey, I'm, I'm up for that, and um, maybe next time have your guitar ready and ask you to play. Oh, okay. <laughs> okay. All right. Take care. Thanks. You too. Thanks for listening. This has been the Lean Blog Podcast. For lean news and commentary updated daily, visit www.leanblog.org. If you have any questions or comments about this podcast, email mark at leanpodcast at gmail.com.